If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to The Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Salem, Investigating the Witch Trials. Brought to you by History Extra, I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This is episode six. So far in this series, we've looked at some of the reasons why witchcraft accusations may have initially erupted. But what if part of the explanation for how events at Salem unfolded lies not only in how the accusations first appeared, but in how these claims of witchcraft went from a flickering flame to a vast, unquenchable inferno? Something we need to consider is how justice was administered and the significant failings in the system. From the acceptance of so-called spectral evidence to the chaotic scenes that unfolded in the courtroom, This list of failings is a substantial one. As we'll hear, suspected witches were induced into giving confessions and even encouraged to implicate others, allowing one accusation to bloom into three, then nine, then 20. As historian of early America Kathleen Brown told me, these legal failings are one of the primary things that are remembered about the Salem trials today. Salem, and especially 
Salem witchcraft are often invoked in the United States, even to the present day, to talk about a kind of runaway lack of legality, lack of process, where people, their reputations and their very lives and livelihoods are injured, um, are smeared by slander and innuendo and false accusations. And so it's come to mean a kind of a it's, a, it's a bad example of when people are not restrained by law or by morality or by common sense and kind of um, allow the momentum of accusing and scapegoating people to get out of control. And it still means that in the present day when people refer to, especially, uh, it's a witch hunt. Um, when people say it's just a witch hunt, and that those phrases come up very often in the past several years, um, what they're referring to is this almost extra legal process of hunting down ordinary people and scapegoating them. Just think about the most famous cultural representation of Salem, Arthur Miller's 1953 play The Crucible, which isn't really about witchcraft at all, but a thinly veiled metaphor for attempts to root out communist sympathisers in 50s America. But the runaway legality at play in Salem provided a provocative parable. As Miller himself later put it, quote, the thought that the state had lost its mind and is punishing so many innocent people is intolerable. So had the state, or more accurately, the Salem justice system, really lost its mind by allowing the trials to unfold as they did. Historian of witchcraft Ronald Hutton drew some interesting comparisons between the Salem case and the ways that witchcraft prosecution played out in Europe. If you get a big, closely centralised state like England, France, or the bigger German states or Spain, then their justice is centrally administered, often by professional judges. And the processes of interrogation are long and careful, and usually don't involve torture. And so execution rates are low. In England, for most of the early modern period, we have the assize system, which was still around when I was young, of these county courts with professional crown judges and juries and panelled from across the county. And so the cases are heard carefully by people who don't know the accused and are instructed by experts. And so in England, in the 16th, 17th century, if you're accused of witchcraft, you have a 75 to 80% chance of being found not guilty. The thing about colonial America is it didn't really produce witch hunters. Uh, it produces people on the fringe of the European world who've heard of witches and have sometimes read of witches, but aren't exactly sure what to do about them. And one of the reasons that Salem is so messy and so tear-jerking is that it's an explosion of fear of witchcraft in a small community. And the people in charge then try to work out what to do next. They take advice, they read things, and they botch all this stuff together to concoct a witch hunt. So the thing about witch hunting in America is it's done by amateurs and people who aren't quite sure what they're doing and often change their minds about it. So is it fair to characterise those who presided over the trials at Salem as ignorant amateurs? I asked Professor Marion Gibson to tell me more about the ways that justice was administered. The colony has quite a, a 
established justice system. So you have local courts and then you have a general court that runs the whole colony of Massachusetts and everybody does their business there. It deals with a whole range of stuff from land transactions through to to criminal cases. But it breaks down during the Salem trials and that's one of the things that really turns this from a little local witchcraft accusation into a massive panic where hundreds of people are arrested. They decide in their wisdom to set up a special court, this court of Oyer and Termina that people might have heard about. Um, And it's like appointing a special commission. It's like having a public inquiry. It's that kind of level of specialness that they're attributing to these events. So as Marion mentioned there, after initial hearings overseen by the magistrates John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin, which had seen accusations mushroom out of control, on May the 27th, William Phipps, the governor of the province of Massachusetts Bay, established the court of Oyer and Termina to take over the case. Its strange-sounding name was taken from the Anglo-French for to hear and determine. This new court set up shop in Salem's two-storey brick townhouse and pursued its mission of halting the spread of witchcraft with a deadly zeal. Marion Gibson. And because it's been given this one specific task, my goodness, it goes to town on it. And soon it's questioning lots of people about witchcraft. The justice system in Massachusetts ought to have protected the people of Salem and and the accusations ought to have died down after a bit. But they don't. And it's partly because they invent this new court to deal with the accusations. Presiding over the court of Oyer and Termina was a panel of seven judges, headed up by the chief judge, William Stoughton, who we'll hear a lot more about in a moment. These were local worthies deemed by Governor Phipps to be, quote, persons of the best prudence and figure that could then be pitched upon. But as Stacey Schiff, author of The Witches, Salem 1692, highlights, this didn't necessarily mean that they were particularly well-versed in matters of law. A panel of very eminent justices is put together. None of these men, I should add, um, as was true everywhere in Massachusetts 1692, has, has a legal degree. Um, but they are the most eminent members, the most learned members of, of the community. They consult with the experts as they will do throughout the trials, the experts being ministers um, in this case. So although they may have been inexperienced in trying witches, those presiding over the court of Oyer and Termina were pretty much the best that New England had to offer at the time, hand-selected by the most influential political figure in the province, Kathleen Brown. Nobody could have been executed without the full um, investment and cooperation of ministers and political figures, judges and magistrates. Um, This is the um, Puritan intelligentsia and um, the most elite and powerful legal figures fully bought in to the idea that there are witches in New England and it's the devil in everybody's midst and that they need to be stopped. And Kathleen suggests that, whether conscious or unconscious, there could be an imperative for those in charge to crack down on suspected witches with a ferocious seal. It really couldn't have happened the way it happened without the people in charge being fully invested. And Um, I think the argument that they themselves felt that um, the devil was in their midst and that they were vulnerable and they had not done a very good job of protecting New England from Native peoples, um, even as, of course, it was Native peoples who were simply trying to hold on to what they had. That sense of 
failure, of things being out of control, of vulnerability, of being tested and being infiltrated by the devil. I think that was pretty widespread all the way to the upper reaches of society. Um, And I think it was an effort to regain control, right? So, you can't necessarily defeat the Wabanaki at Casco Bay, but you could try all the witches and put them to death and take care of that problem and reassert a certain amount of authority. And running the show was a man who had recently been appointed to a position of great authority indeed. Chief Judge William Stoughton was Massachusetts' new lieutenant governor, who'd been responsible for organising defences against French colonists and Native Americans. Stacey Schiff. They are led by William Stoughton, who is hands down the best legal expert in the colony. He's the person you went to if you had a question of law. He's the person you went to if you needed a case adjudicated in or out of court. Um, He's everybody's first choice of of a legal authority. But despite being Massachusetts' finest legal brain, it's fair to say that Stoughton had his failings. Marion Gibson. He does his best, I'm sure, but he makes a terrible mess of the legal process and doesn't seem to notice that he's doing it. And even when the initial group of trials are over and the court of Oyer and Terminer is dismissed at the start of 1693, he's then put in charge of a superior court, which is the successor court to this, this failed earlier model. He carries on doing the same thing. Um, and I think he's an important figure because he has a lot of power and a lot of responsibility and he's making the wrong decisions. Stoughton was a severe presence in the courtroom. Determined to root out wrongdoers and see them held to account, he pushed for prosecutions. In the case of the respectable matriarch Rebecca Nurse, when the jury delivered a verdict of not guilty, Stoughton urged them to reconsider. They followed his advice and changed their verdict to guilty. Nurse was executed as a result. Stoughton believes the witnesses that come to him Um, And he's quite zealous in hunting down people who they've named. So to some extent, he's presented with evidence, which he has to act on. It's his job. You know, somebody's been accused, he has to have them in and question them and so on. Um, But also, I think he is overly dependent on what the accusers say. He's too credulous. He's too willing to believe what they say and not really to ask questions. And he had he has the good sense to ask for advice from the local community of ministers, who, after all, are the religious experts here. You know, if you're dealing with the devil, who do you ask? You ask a minister. <laughs> um, so he does the right thing in that way. But the ministers give him very equivocal evidence. Some of what they say is, yeah, yeah, go ahead with the trials. And unfortunately, that's the bit that he takes to heart. But the other bit is be careful about the evidence that you accept. And he is much less careful about the evidence that he accepts than I think we would want him to be. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Marion mentioned there that Stoughton was not scrupulous enough with the evidence he accepted. And this leads us on to one of the key criticisms of the court of Euron and Termina. That in the first months of the trial, Stoughton admitted what was known as spectral evidence. This was based on the idea that a witch's spirit could appear to an accuser in a vision or a dream. Sometimes they would be disguised as an animal or accompanied by the devil. These terrifying apparitions would frequently injure or torment their victims, most commonly by pinching or choking them. Spectral evidence was levelled against several of those who would later be executed. Multiple people claimed that Bridget Bishop had visited them as a spectre to menace them at night. Meanwhile, Mercy Lewis testified that she, quote, saw the apparition of Giles Corey come and afflict me, by times beating me and almost breaking my back. While Chief Judge Stoughton argued for the inclusion of spectral evidence such as this, some of the other judges doubted whether such sensational claims should be used to justify the death penalty. Responding to concerns, in October, Governor Phipps ordered an end to spectral evidence. But by that time, 20 people were already dead, many of those convicted on the basis of spectral claims. Alongside Stoughton, Another figure who's often credited with propelling the proceedings forward is one of the most controversial characters in the Salem case, the young Boston minister, Cotton Mather. Mather is said to have encouraged Governor Phipps in the appointment of Stoughton as chief judge, and as a religious minister, was consulted at several points in the case. Mather was someone who both Stacey Schiff identified as influential in the way things unfolded. I would really not want to downplay the role of the, of the Massachusetts ministry in this. Cotton Mather's consulted at various junctures. He never, ever issues a statement that isn't a sort of two-handed statement. It's always, this thing is true, but nonetheless, this thing is also true. You, know, you shouldn't use spectral evidence in court, but nonetheless, you have no other means to use. Um, you don't want to hang an innocent, but nonetheless, you don't want a guilty person to go free. Um, so there's a certain, it's not cheerleading, but there's a certain encouragement um, of the of the judicial process. 
And he's important because he too seems to think that there is a massive problem here and to see that perhaps he can get something out of this as a minister. He's very keen to preach godly sermons. He's very keen to visit the trials and executions. He tends to have his finger in a lot of pies. And historians have suspected him traditionally as being perhaps the most villainous figure in the the grouping. You know, if they've wanted a villain, it's Cotton Mather they go for. Um, and that's partly because he's a minister and it's sort of easy to pick on a on a, a religious figure and say, oh, well, they're a fanatic. But in some ways, yes, I think he probably was a fanatic. He was a very strong Puritan, but also he seems extremely self-righteous. And the way that he subsequently represents the evidence, you know, he prints some of the evidence given by ministers to that court, the court of Oya and Termina, and he leaves out some of the sections of it. So I think he's kind of trying to cover his tracks a little bit afterwards. And Mather's interference in the case was similarly recognised by his contemporaries. Boston merchant Robert Califf was locked in an antagonistic correspondence with Mather during the trials. He later criticised Mather's incendiary account of events, in which Mather had, for example, called one of the accused, Martha Carrier, a rampant hag and a queen of hell. Califf wrote that in terms of escalating the trials, Mather, quote, conduced much to the kindling of those flames that threatened the devouring of this country. Alongside Stoughton's admission of spectral evidence and Mather's dubious advice, there were some serious underlying structural and procedural issues at play, both in the initial magistrates' hearings and the court of Oyer and Termina that followed. Historian of witchcraft Ronald Hutton and Professor Marion Gibson told me more. The motivation of people interrogating people suspected of witchcraft was extremely varied. Officially, it's supposed to be to find the truth. And the interrogation is supposed to be applied expertly enough to allow innocence to reveal itself and to detect the genuinely guilty. But as we all know across any law enforcement system, that doesn't always work. The people of Salem are effectively inventing their own justice system. Uh, And this turns out to be a very bad thing. Back at home in England, where a lot of these Puritan emigrants came from, the local magistrates were usually squires or maybe they were local lords. And they were often men who had some training in the law. So they'd have some ideas about how to record evidence. They'd have some ideas about what wasn't a fair question. They'd have some ideas about who was and wasn't a good witness. Like a, a very young child is not a good witness, for example. So there were certain checks and balances. There were certain ways in which English law protected people who were accused of crimes. These didn't really get translated to the new world because it was a new world for the colonists. They wanted to invent a new, and they thought better, justice system there as well. And they start holding these hearings where there are loads of people in the room where things aren't properly recorded. They mess up the procedures that would normally be expected to protect defendants. And of course, the defendants aren't represented by anybody. They wouldn't have been in the English courts either, but they're in a far more pressurised situation. They've got literally no barrier between them and their neighbours. And often the people doing the questioning are the very neighbours who have accused them. Marion referred to accepting evidence from a young child there. And the testimony of children was at the basis of many of the accusations at Salem several of which led to executions. One of the court's star witnesses was the 12-year-old Anne Putnam Jr., who levelled colourful accusations against up to 62 people. Meanwhile, Dorothy Good, who was aged just four or five at the time, was accused of witchcraft herself, 
She was imprisoned and her confession helped to convict her own mother, Sarah. And relying on unreliable witnesses was just one point on an extensive list of dubious processes. Marion Gibson. Unfortunately, the cases that are brought tend to be about proving that somebody is a witch rather than independently investigating, uh, objectively investigating um, what they've actually done. And the people of Salem and the other communities involved in the witch hunt don't mean this to be the case, but they don't have that legal training. They don't have that presumption of innocence. Admittedly, even in English cases, it it doesn't always work that way. You know, witch trial does tend to be pretty much a special event and often it does become about proving that old mother so-and-so really is a witch. But in Salem, that's far more true than in other places. Indeed, in several of the trials and hearings, the accusers weren't just present. In fact, they delivered spectacular performances to back up their claims. In the hearing of Rebecca Nurse, several of the afflicted girls shrieked out in pain, claiming that the accused was torturing and biting them by invisible means. At one point, Nurse bent her neck, and her actions were mirrored by Elizabeth Hubbard. The villagers jumped in to alter Nurse's posture, terrified that if they didn't, Hubbard's neck would snap. As well as chaos in the courtroom, and the accused being left to conduct their own defence, there was another issue. While today's legal default may be innocent until proven guilty, that wasn't how things played out in the court of Oyer and Termina. And they introduced this legal innovation, which to us now appears ridiculous and and unjust, which is that that if people confess, they will be let off. That would happen in the English cases that they're used to. You know, if you confess, you're executed, and that's the end of the matter. Um, It maybe doesn't even come to court. You, you, You know, you just fess up, and that's the end of them. This leads us on to one of the most confusing aspects of the Salem case, the high rate of confessions. Why on earth would anyone admit to flying on a pole or attending a satanic baptism? But as Marion suggested, there was a very clear incentive for confessing. If you have a system where if you confess, you're let off, then yeah, you confess, don't you? So of course that proves that you were a witch. But also if there are other people who you've accused in your evidence, that tends to prove that they're witches as well. You can absolutely see how this takes off. The usual checks and balances are missing. This is a very small pressurised community administering justice on its own citizens. And of course it's a mess. So what was behind this contradictory system, in which if you admitted guilt, you avoided punishment? As Ronald Hutton highlights, in cases like this, confessions were by far the easiest way for Salem justices to pin down prosecutions. Because it's awfully hard to prove witchcraft. You don't have any physical evidence. You usually don't have any witnesses. So a confession is the optimal thing for accusers to obtain. Uh, On the continent, very widely, torture was used to obtain a confession. And of course, if you torture people proficiently, you will get your confession. And that's one of the horrors and problems of many big witch hunts. At Salem, it was most unusual in that if people were able to confess or willing to confess, they were regarded as having to some extent expiated their crime, and the court looked more favourably upon them. Whereas those who held resolutely to a not guilty plea were much more likely to be hanged when they were found guilty. Uh, And that's a very, very unusual and very poignant situation, because it means that the most brave and honourable people are those who die. 
And indeed, in both the magistrates' hearings and at the court of Oyer and Termina, the accused had consistently been encouraged not only to confess, but also to implicate others and help the justices root out ever more witches. Stacey Schiff. Those who were most resistant to confessing, those who stood their ground, those who insisted rightly on the fact that they were not witches, um, tended to fare the worst. And the person who was most pliable, who was most amenable to instruction from the bench, who was most willing to confess, and especially to name names, that person fared better, if not best. Um, The confessors don't tend to hang. Um, It's the people like Martha Corey who insist on their innocence from the very beginning who hang. Martha Corey is the woman who, um, and I find this such a chilling line, will very early on in her in her first deposition, ask, um, can an innocent person be guilty? And she'll insist on that innocence until the very end. She's accused in March. She'll she'll be hanged in September. At no point there does she waver. It's a lot easier um, to remain alive if you name names. And that, of course, is one of the contributing factors um, to the extent of this epidemic, because fairly early on, people realize that if they point a finger at someone else, if they can turn in Um, a neighbor, they may save their own skins. And there is an additional incentive to do that in the sense that you thought or you were led to think that you were doing your godly duty in doing so. You were helping, most most everyone believed there really was witchcraft at work, even if he or she was not the perpetrator. So, and that's something that even Martha Corey will say. She'll say, um, you know, it must have been one of those three other women who were first accused. They were idle and slothful creatures. So there are witches. It's just, I am not the witch. Um, so the, um, the finger pointing becomes a very, um, a very sort of virtuous feeling um, way of both saving your skin and saving the community. Earlier, Ronald Hutton mentioned the power of torture in extracting confessions. And that's something we should address. In theory, physical torture was not permitted under Massachusetts law, unless it was deemed necessary in a capital crime to make someone share the identities of their accomplices. Even then, it was not supposed to involve any, quote, barbarous and inhumane practices. Nonetheless, we do know that at the very least, some of those interrogated, including the sons of Martha Carrier, who was executed as a witch, had their necks and heels tied together with their bodies bent backwards, quote, till blood was ready to come out of their noses. Whether other physical torture took place, we can't be certain. But add to this the fact that suspects had often spent weeks languishing in a filthy cell with little to eat and had been submitted to humiliating strip searches and pricked with pins to uncover witches' marks. We also need to remember the simple fact that all of this was unfolding against a backdrop of intense scrutiny from the community. And the accused faced a persistent assault on their willpower from some of the most eminent and powerful men in the colony. From interrogation and the threat of torture to the power of persuasion, they were under a barrage of pressure to submit. Stacey Schiff. The stature of those men um, in a town like Salem or to a villager from Salem, would be impossible to overestimate. These are really the pillars of the community. Um, they are the sort of political infrastructure of the world around them. And the, and the Salem villagers, who really live in this little outpost on, on the frontier, um, live in awe of these men. So for anyone having to 
appear before them. It would have been a very daunting experience, regardless of the nature of the accusations. And then you have a brand of psychological torture that is beyond chilling, like an adolescent girl who's carted carted off to prison. And on one side of her, she has her minister. And on the other side, she has her brother, her her stepbrother, actually. And they're both saying to her, we know you're a witch. Of course you're a witch. Confess. And given the you know, asymmetric warfare here, it must have been really hard to hold one's own ground. Throughout this episode, we've heard stories that would horrify modern legal practitioners. Stories of judges rejecting not guilty verdicts, of chaos in the courtroom, of intimidation and psychological torture. Those in charge not only set up a flawed system, but pushed for prosecutions and allowed or even encouraged accusations to escalate. Having heard all of this, it would be easy to form a narrative in which those who were in positions of power or presided over the trials, men like Cotton Mather and William Stoughton, were cruel, heartless villains. But is this fair? This is something that I asked Marion Gibson about, and her answer brought us full circle, right back to the terrifying strength of belief in witchcraft. I think that casting the accusers and the judges as villains isn't really very helpful. Yes, they did evil things, um, and this was a terrible episode, and a lot of innocent people died, a lot of innocent people were sent to jail. It must have been hideous for the whole community. But I do think that they did what they did out of conscience, out of conviction. In most cases, maybe there are people who were involved who were not acting out of conscience, but I'm not sure I could point to them. I I think benefit of the doubt is probably the best tool a historian has here in thinking about this. And they believe that they were witches. They were faced with a group of people who appeared to be terribly afflicted, who were screaming and crying um, and apparently having fits in front of them. These were children in many cases too. This must have been extremely upsetting. And they have this sense that they're responsible for the whole community. You know, if you're a judge in this community, it's your job to make sure that evildoers are cast out and that people are punished and that law and order is restored and that people in your community are safe. And that's a terrible responsibility. And they do take it very seriously. They get it massively wrong But I don't think that that's because they're villains. I think that's just because they're human. (laughs) On the next episode, we'll be asking, could witchcraft accusations be a way of getting revenge on troublesome neighbours? Salem Investigating the Witch Trials is made by the team behind BBC History Magazine and the History Extra podcast. It's written and produced by me, Ellie Cawthorn. Production and sound engineering is by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Fact-checking by Josette Reeves. Our editor is Rob Attar and our content director is Dave Musgrove. For more history podcasts on a variety of subjects, head to historyextra.com forward slash podcast. Mm-hmm.